The battle over the fate of millions of people in the United States facing eviction continues as the movement for housing rights gains momentum. Meanwhile, the new COVID wave worsens, the Taliban seized a series of key cities in Afghanistan, and more. Plus, we'll hear from special guest Eugene Perrier about his recent trip to Ghana to attend a historic Congress launching a new socialist organization with major support from the country's youth. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's August 10th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ibarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ibarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, what do we have in store for our listeners this week? Well, there's so much to talk about. I want to get started, of course, with the housing eviction moratorium extension in the drama, the battle that's playing out in the courts, in the streets. As our listeners know, we were at the Capitol with Cori Bush and housing rights activists and others, and people were starting to mobilize around the country when the Biden administration suddenly decided that they were going to do something about the moratorium extension on evictions. 6.3 million families, that means millions of children, were facing homelessness as a consequence of the moratorium being lifted. Two million more families are facing foreclosure, loss of their homes and loss of much of their equity, or perhaps all of their equity if they're foreclosed because they're behind on their mortgages. So Biden decided, yes, we're going to extend the moratorium. We're going to invoke the Centers for Disease Control decision that happened during the Trump administration. Using the COVID-19 pandemic as really the pretext to prevent the eviction of millions of families. So suddenly, after Cori Bush took her strong action, had a sit-in, a sleep-in, was at the Capitol building for multiple days, and people started to come. Some members of Congress who did nothing but go on vacation, they started to show up on Monday. In other words, support was starting to build, and Biden, anticipating that this support would grow and grow, decided to take action and extend the moratorium. The assumption was, well, this will be overturned quickly because Brett Kavanaugh was the fifth vote in the Supreme Court decision a month ago where Kavanaugh said he would vote yes to extend the moratorium, but only for one more month. People assumed that if Biden extended the moratorium using the CDC as a pretext, that landlords and realtors would go back to court and the courts would quickly rule that the moratorium was unconstitutional. 
And we've made this argument and we make this argument over and over again. Don't assume a battle has been lost when it hasn't been fully waged. And however small a struggle might seem, however tiny an ember of resistance might appear, the role of the left should be to fan the flame of resistance, to make it a roaring fire, as we said last week. Not because we know in advance that we're guaranteed success, but we know in advance that if there is no struggle, we're guaranteed to lose. And losing in this case is very important because, as we said, millions of families will lose their homes. I was so happy and so proud of the activists in the Deep South, in Georgia, in Alabama, in Mississippi, who came together over the weekend and held a demonstration under the banner Housing is a Human Right, demanding that the Alabama realtors who filed the lawsuit again to overturn the extension of the moratorium, that they be held up to public ridicule and condemnation, that they represent the rich, the elites, trying to drive families out. This demonstration was organized by Cancel the Rents, which is a national campaign. You can go to their website, canceltherents.org. It was endorsed by the Housing Justice League. We in the Answer Coalition did a lot of work to promote it, both through social media, telling our activist network to support it, doing press work for it. That demonstration got really significant coverage in Alabama over the weekend. And the court hearing was yesterday, and it didn't go as some of the people expected. In fact, at least what we heard at the court hearing suggested that the court might not rule as people had expected. Well, Brian, the hearing yesterday was very interesting. This was a case brought by the Alabama Association of Realtors, and it took place before U.S. District Judge Dabney Friedrich. Friedrich is a Trump appointee. She's a right winger. She's pro landlord. And earlier in May, she ruled that the CDC moratorium was unconstitutional. So, you know, very clearly not one bit a liberal or like a pro tenant judge. She did, however, ask pointed questions to both sides. And we really don't know how she's going to rule. However, we should remember that judges, even right-wing judges, you know, meaning judges who normally rule in a right-wing, pro-boss, pro-corporation, pro-landlord way, can be impacted or swayed based on the political environment. I mean, judges are political. They're not just referees calling shots, and we know that they can be affected by the political climate, and that political climate can be shaped by a number of different factors. One factor is the level of struggle. A second is the dimension of the crisis by evicting millions of families. And the third is the fact that the COVID-19 pandemic is indeed spiking with the Delta variant running rampant. And it's running rampant specifically in the areas that are considered red states, where the vaccinated part of the population is smaller and therefore the rate of transmission is higher. So Judge Friedrich, on one hand, suggested that the Biden administration was guilty of quote-unquote gamesmanship by announcing a moratorium extension after it had elapsed and uh, when the administration was under pressure. At the same time, she made the argument that Brett Kavanaugh's announcement that he would vote with the four so-called liberals on the Supreme Court to constitute a majority and allow the moratorium extension to continue for one more month, and that was back at the end of July. She made it clear that Kavanaugh's single-handedly written concurring opinion was simply a personal opinion and not the controlling opinion of the Supreme Court. To be clear, the court ruled five to four that the moratorium was not unconstitutional or in non-legalese to take out all those double negatives, the court ruled five to four that the moratorium is constitutional. And Kavanaugh said that he felt it was unconstitutional and Congress should handle it next time. 
but he voted with the majority, again, who ruled it was constitutional. So that is what became the Supreme Court determination. That's what became the Supreme Court ruling. So yes, Judge Friedrich accused Biden yesterday in the hearing of quote-unquote gamesmanship. But she also said to the landlord's attorney, quote, why are my hands not tied in light of the D.C. Circuit opinion, unquote? The D.C. Circuit, meaning the D.C. Court of Appeals, had earlier reversed her original ruling in May, Friedrich's original ruling in May, that the moratorium was unconstitutional. So it's really unclear what Judge Friedrich will rule. And maybe within the next few hours or the next few days, we'll find out. But this is a battle that has not been fully fought. And no matter what the judge rules, it will still not be fully fought. Because when millions of families are facing evictions and when tens of millions are behind in their rent and will face eviction eventually, that's a combustible set of circumstances. And it requires a broader, deeper, and more militant struggle. And it's not going to be about what one group or another group does. It's not going to be about that. It's about whether masses of people enter into political activity whether they become engaged in a struggle. And frequently, you really don't know what the catalyst or the triggering event will be. But certainly this crisis, this eviction housing crisis, which is almost unprecedented in modern history, or really maybe any time, you know, it certainly has the potential of being just such a meaningful event. In the 1930s, we had a five-year moratorium on foreclosures in Michigan, which was upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court in the decision of Home Loan and Building Association versus Blaisdell, where the court held that during periods of emergency, the people's right to survive supersedes the contract clause of the U.S. Constitution, meaning if people fight, the courts are not simply these apolitical vessels, referees calling balls and strikes about what's constitutional or not. They are political animals and they can feel the political pressure. And what's happening right now, Nicole, is that millions of people are in danger of getting COVID, especially in red states where the vaccination rates are lower. And they're also going to be losing their homes because the economy is still in many, many parts of the country in essentially a recession. So this is a political issue. It's not simply a legal issue. That's why what we do what the working class does, what the movement does, our attitude, our tactics actually can make a huge difference. Yeah, Brian, I mean, that's completely correct for judges and it's completely true for senators as well. They are susceptible to mass pressure from the movement of the people, from the struggle of the people. So on Monday, highly significant thing happened. The budget blueprint for the $3.5 trillion social spending bill that's up for consideration in Congress was released. And this essentially initiates a process. So this isn't a completed bill yet, but it initiates a process that could result in the implementation of some of the most far-reaching progressive reforms in, you know, maybe the last 50 years or so. I mean, since the great society programs of the Johnson administration One of the most significant things that is potentially going to be in this social spending plan is the extension, making permanent a tax credit that is of enormous value, enormous help to working class parents. Essentially, under this tax credit, working class parents would get a $250 monthly check for every child they have over the age of six and $300 a month for every child 
under the age of six. This would, by some estimates, lift 4 million children out of poverty, and that would cut the overall poverty rate in the country by 40%. This would be a massive anti-poverty program. It would also allow the United States to catch up with virtually every other wealthy country and guarantee family and sick leave to all workers. It would make pre-K universal and free, guarantee that every child has the right to go to pre-K, which is, again, hugely important for working class parents as a form of child care. And it would make community college free. That's in addition to hundreds of billions of dollars of investments in affordable housing, in updates to infrastructure and other you know, critical pieces of the country's economy related to the climate crisis, you know, invest hundreds of billions of dollars in tackling the climate crisis, expand Pell Grants for higher education, increase funding for historically black colleges and universities. You know, this would be of huge significance to working class people all across the country who have been so terribly battered by, you know, of course, the long term trends of capitalism, but everything that's happened in the last year or two with the pandemic, the collapse in the economy, you know, the foreclosure crisis, like we were just talking about the rapid rise in unemployment. This would be huge if it passes. Now, you could say, well, sure, some Democrats are for it. It's easy for Joe Biden to say that he's in favor of it because they know that Kristen Sinema or Joe Manchin or any of these, you know, most right wing Democrats in the Senate will just block all the best parts of this bill. Uh, to me, that's a completely useless attitude. I mean, rather than saying, oh, this is doomed from the start, none of these crucially important things will ever happen. We could start thinking about how we can place massive pressure, tremendous pressure on these right wing Democrats who are threatening to block or at least hollow out this huge anti-poverty social spending bill, right? There could be sit-ins at the offices of Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin and others. There could be huge demonstrations, you know, labor organizations could weigh in, civil rights organizations could weigh in. And I think, you know, many of these things are already in the works. And for radical people, people who are, I think, rightly completely fed up with the Democratic Party, we should be part of this. It's crucially important that we're part of this because it shows that struggle can actually make a difference. It's worthwhile to struggle because it leads to concrete gains in your daily life. And that doesn't necessarily end up reinforcing support for the system or belief in the possibility of reform. If we do our jobs right, if it's explained correctly, and if people who are radicals, who are left-wing people, aren't just waving their fingers, wagging their fingers off on the sidelines. I think the lesson that people could draw from victories like the victory with the extension of the moratorium eviction and hopefully with a victory on this social spending plan is that when we fight, we're actually capable of defeating our enemy, the ruling class, who robs and exploits us with such impunity. Yeah, and it doesn't mean we're supporting the Democrats. On the contrary, on the contrary, holding the Democrats' feet to the fire by building a mass movement is not supporting the Democrats. It's making demands on the ruling class party that controls the House, the Senate, and the White House. They have the ability uh, to do whatever they want. And the fact that they're doing nothing or virtually nothing up until now, or only under extreme pressure, uh, demonstrates what they really are. But every ruling class can also and has also made concessions to the masses of people when people fight 
and when people struggle. When you look at the U.S. Congress in 1964, the one that passed the Civil Rights Act, the most far-reaching piece of legislation, along with the Voting Rights Act the next year in 1965, that Congress was made up of a bunch of racist, Dixiecrat-dominated politicians. They were the same Congress that upheld apartheid and the laws of apartheid, the laws of Jim Crow, the same laws. They upheld that right up until the moment where they passed the legislation that did away with it. What changed? It wasn't Congress. It wasn't the politicians. It wasn't that the liberals became better or they became more fearsome fighters. That's not what changed. What changed is the people changed. The people in the United States, starting with the Montgomery bus boycott, formed a massive movement. The black community, the African-American community, joined by millions of white people and Latino people and Asian-American people and Arab-American and indigenous people. The people were in the streets for a decade. And then the same reactionary Congress passed far-reaching progressive legislation. It was a concession wrung from the ruling class. That doesn't mean you have to love the Democrats. In fact, Martin Luther King Jr., who was, of course, meeting with them and trying to win them over to pass the Civil Rights Act, two years later stood out and stood up against LBJ's war in Vietnam. So that's the art of the politics, but the foundation of change is the movement of the masses of people. Brian, I think that's an incredible rule to live by in many different formats and many different issues and dealing with the ruling class as a whole. And one of the ways in which it's so clear that the ruling class is deeply uninterested and you know deeply motivated by their own wealth and their own power and not the rest of us, not the working class, is when we watch the politicians in this country and the banks in this country and the billionaires in this country do nothing, in fact, escalate only as the climate crisis gets worse and worse and worse. New reports really show why we need to get rid of capitalism for all living things to actually survive, for all of us to survive, for animals, plants, mammals, invertebrates, for everybody on the planet to survive. We actually need socialism. Esther, can you tell us a little bit more about these reports? Well, you know, along with what we see in front of us, these devastating floods all over the world and fires like the Dixie Fire in California has consumed like a half a million acres at this point. There are two new reports that you mentioned that provide just more proof of how serious this climate catastrophe is and and that we're in right now. It's not a future thing. It's not something that we have to guard against happening, you know, next year or the year after. It's like definitely happening right now. So the first study was authored by Nicholas Bors, a researcher at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research in Germany, and published Thursday in the journal Nature Climate Change. It basically warns that this crucial planetary system of currents in the Atlantic Ocean called the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, AMOC, is slowing, and that the overall system of ocean currents is unstable. So this system of currents includes the Gulf Stream, which carries warm water from the tropics northwards to the North Atlantic, like a conveyor belt. And Boris says in the report that, quote, the findings support the assessment that the AMOC, the AMOC decline is not just a fluctuation or a linear response to increasing temperatures, but likely means the approaching of a critical threshold beyond which the circulation system could collapse. And he told The Guardian that the signs of destabilization being visible already is something that 
this is him quoting that I would not have expected and that I find scary. And that's him talking to the reporter. It's something that you just can't allow to happen, he says. So scientists have warned for decades that this weakening in the system of ocean currents, which operate in this global ecological system, impacts the rains that billions of people depend on for food, like all over the world in West Africa, India, or South America. They moderate the temperatures in Europe. And the breakdown of the system could further endanger the Amazon, which is already under threat from like these policies by, you know, this neo-fascist, you know, Bolsonaro, and even affect the melting, further melting of Antarctic sheets. And scientists don't know enough about these systems to say when a possible collapse could happen. You know, the thing about the climate that they're learning is that things that they thought would be years off or decades off are happening right now. And so this report actually reminds me of the important point made by scientists in the 2014 movie Disruption. And this movie was created for the run-up to the People's Climate March. And it was directed by Kelly Nikes and Jared P. Scott. And the point was made that these various manifestations of the climate crisis feed into each other. So the slowing of the Gulf Stream impacts the melting of the Antarctic. The melting ice in the Arctic releases plumes of methane, you know, that had been trapped under the ice for millennia. And then this increased methane in the environment has its own impact to further put more carbon into the air. It's like a mega carbon, like much more than CO2. This methane is really a mega warmer, if you want to call it that, right? So I think we have a clip from the movie with scientists and activists talking about the load of carbon that industrialized countries like the U.S. and Europe have dumped into the climate since the Industrial Revolution and really how we got to this point. In the 1850s, John Tyndall made laboratory measurements of the absorption of heat radiation by carbon dioxide. And he concluded that if you change the CO2 in the atmosphere, it's going to affect the planetary energy balance. Tyndall was the one who really came along and proved that carbon dioxide was a natural thermostat that helped set our planet's temperature. In the late 1800s, it was the great Swedish chemist Arrhenius who first did the calculations about what would happen as we, as he put it, evaporated our coal mines into the air. But people didn't pay much attention to that in the 20th century because we were too busy figuring out cool new ways to burn fossil fuel. It was only in the late 1950s that we even bothered to measure to see if it was accumulating in the atmosphere. That instrument, which went up on the side of Mauna Loa in Hawaii, is the most important scientific instrument in the world. Beginning in 1959, it found that there was a steadily accumulating amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, the so-called Keeling curve. So that was a clip from the movie Disruption from 2014. And then the second report released Monday is the latest set of dire warnings from the UN panel on climate change, the IPCC. And the panel assembled a team of more than 200 scientists that basically confirm again for us what they've been trying to tell us for several years now that the burning of fossil fuels has altered the climate. And they say that the burning of these fossil fuels is creating an unprecedented planetary warming, glacial melting, sea level rise, and other changes that are wreaking havoc in every region of the globe, even wiping out entire towns, as we know, and imperiling 
biodiversity, you know, around the globe. And one finding that I'll mention from the report is that the policymakers have failed to take the necessary steps to curb the greenhouse gas emissions that they said they would after the Paris Climate Agreement. And so that goal that the agreement had of having global temperatures rise no more than 1.5% Celsius above pre-industrial levels, it's almost impossible to meet that at this point. The study talks about that for the past four decades, each decade has become warmer and warmer, and that the changes that they're seeing right now in the climate are unprecedented, and unprecedented in thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years, and that some of the changes already set in motion cannot easily be reversed, and that it could take 20 to 30 years to see global temperatures stabilize. When you hear the statistics that these reports are bringing forth, It's very scary. It's very depressing. People might think, wow, it's too late. Are we past the point of no return? Have we, you know, reached the point of irreversibility? And we know from many of the experts who are commenting, the scientists who are commenting on the wildfires that are taking place all over the world, the flash floods, the extreme weather events, that the modeling that they were using a couple of years ago indicated that these events, these weather and climate events should be happening in about 70 years, but they're happening now. I mean, it's mind-blowing. And one of the problems, I think, is that it leads to people feeling, wait, it is too late. There's nothing we can do. And that's the actual mindset that would contribute to making it impossible to do something. Because We need a new system. That's what we say in the beginning of our show. We need a new system. We need a new society. Capitalism, which maximizes profit as the sole criteria for production or the profits and wealth of the capitalists, that system is unable to carry out a rational reorganization of society such that getting climate control or mitigation of climate catastrophe could be, in fact, in a practical way, the top priority. And so that's why, Nicole, what you said in the beginning is so important. Instead of this paralyzing us with unhappiness and depression, which would certainly be understandable, it should be the really compelling argument for socialism and for the socialist reorganization of the economy. And by the way, I was doing a little bit of research and looked at the National Intelligence Council, that's the NIC, their quadrennial report that came out just last year. And in the National Intelligence Council, which is, you know, a primary forecaster for U.S. intelligence services, they are also predicting that climate will be the trigger for revolutionary change. There's one part of that quadrennial report called tragedy and manipulation, which we should just think of those as euphemistic words for revolution and socialism, where the National Intelligence Council lays out a scenario where by 2030, the climate catastrophe has become so dire that people of the world band together against the government and take power and reorganize society. So here you have U.S. intelligence services worried about revolution 
when they look at climate catastrophe, they're thinking not first and foremost, how can we stop it? They're thinking, oh no, this could be a revolution. This could lead to the reorganization of society such that capitalism and the capitalists lose their power. Right, Brian. And that's why we have this program, the socialist program. That's why independent socialist progressive media is so important to really actually bring these things to light and to help people get real news and real information and a real perspective on what's really happening. Walter, speaking of that, I think there's really, really important news coming out of Afghanistan. The situation is really devolving in Afghanistan, and I think it's important that listeners hear about it. That's right. We've seen really dramatic developments in the fighting in Afghanistan over the course of the last week. So the Taliban for a long time had been gaining ground in Afghanistan, especially in the last six months or so. But those gains were primarily contained to rural parts of the country. But in the last week, major cities began to fall to the Taliban. Provincial capitals have been seen as sort of a red line in terms of at least the rhetoric, the posturing of U.S. and Afghan officials. You know, as long as the provincial capitals don't start falling to the Taliban, then there's hope for a negotiated solution. But this finally began to take place. I think it's a highly significant where geographically in Afghanistan these provincial capitals are that have been captured by the Taliban. As of Monday, six provincial capitals had fallen in the span of about four days. So they are in the north of the country, including the most significant city to fall to the Taliban in recent days, Kunduz. The north is not the Taliban's traditional stronghold. In fact, that's the traditional stronghold of the forces in the country that fought against the Taliban, the so-called Northern Alliance that was, you know, sort of the key internal ally in Afghanistan for the United States when the invasion first happened in 2001. And yet that's where all of these major cities that the Taliban have captured are located in the north of the country. They're also near international borders. You know, one city that was not in the north of the country to fall was along the border with Iran. And this is highly significant, both in terms of a stream of revenue for the Taliban that allows them to continue the fight for the long haul, but also politically and diplomatically significant because, you know, I I think the Taliban probably feels pretty confident about their chances of taking over the country. And so they're they're looking ahead at, you know, how do we actually become the government and become recognized internationally as such? And by taking over international border crossings, what they're essentially doing is forcing business people in other countries and governments of other countries to come to at least some sort of de facto arrangement with the Taliban, try to sort of break the taboo on having any types of diplomatic relations. So this is all happening at a lightning pace The Afghan government is scrambling to keep up. Another highly significant trend is the assassination of pilots. Afghanistan has a highly limited number of pilots, and so they're running out of people who are still alive who can operate their air force, giving the Taliban another significant advantage. This is all essentially contributing to the sense that the government is collapsing, and so we may see another series of significant cities fall in the not-too-distant future, too. The United States is continuing its withdrawal. All U.S. combat troops will be out of Afghanistan by the, well, all troops, period, will be out of Afghanistan by the end of this month, by the end of August. And the fact that the events of the last several days have not led to the serious consideration of a re-intervention, a U.S. re-intervention in Afghanistan, or at least, you know, the massive escalation of the Arab War, for instance, over Afghanistan. I think, you know, one can't help but wonder, 
given the sort of muted U.S. response, if there could actually be some kind of arrangement that the U.S. and the Taliban came to about the you know, post-withdrawal future of the country and what will and won't be allowed inside. Walter, that's important. I believe that the U.S. government has, we don't have proof of it, but has come to an agreement with the Taliban. The U.S. is perfectly able to cooperate with the Taliban as a government. It did so before the September 11th attacks in 2001. Taliban government officials were coming to the United States. There was negotiations on pipelines. The fact that the Taliban is an extreme right-wing Islamicist organization and their government is premised on very right-wing theocratic and theologic interpretations of the Quran, that's not a problem for the United States. I mean, the Taliban in many ways is no different from the Saudi royal family in terms of its Wahhabi orientation. As a matter of fact, the Saudi royal family including Osama bin Laden, really gave birth to the Taliban when those forces were getting the support of the U.S. CIA in its war against the socialists in Afghanistan. So I believe that is what's happened. The U.S. has decided that the existing government in Afghanistan isn't really able to stand on its own, that it will lose to the Taliban. And I believe the U.S. is making its own arrangements with the Taliban. So the U.S. has spent two or three trillion dollars Tens of thousands of Afghans have died. Thousands of Americans have either died or had life-changing injuries. And at the end of the day, the U.S. will not accept that it was defeated in Afghanistan, but come to peace with a new Taliban government or a government of national unity with the Taliban at the very center of it. And again, no accountability for this criminal war. Absolutely. I mean, think about all the hundreds of thousands of lives lost. I mean, for what? I mean, the sense of futility there is just totally overwhelming. I mean, another important fact, I think, is that in a lot of these cities, you know, the government forces actually didn't fight. They essentially just collapsed when the Taliban began closing in. You know, the political leadership fled or the military leadership fled or both or soldiers just wouldn't fight. And that's after you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars being pumped into setting up what was ultimately amounted to a completely illegitimate puppet government in Afghanistan. I mean, you know, I, I don't think that the rapid gains of the Taliban are necessarily a reflection of like the ideological appeal of their extremely reactionary politics, so much as it is the complete lack of legitimacy complete lack of ability or willingness to fight on the part of this regime that's been propped up by the United States and is seen by everybody as having no source of legitimacy other than a foreign military occupation. For our next segment, we're happy to be joined by special guest Eugene Perrier. Eugene is a host for Breakthrough News. Be sure to check out his daily podcast, The Punch-Out!, Eugene just returned to the United States from Ghana, where he was a delegate at the founding Congress of the Socialist Movement of Ghana, representing the Party for Socialism and Liberation. We'll talk to him about the emergence of this political movement and how it fits in with broader trends across the region. Welcome to the show, Eugene. Well, thank you so much for having me. Very happy to be here. So tell us about the Socialist Movement of Ghana and the organization that it came out of. Why is this new organization so significant? Well, you know, the Socialist Movement of Ghana, which comes out of an organization, the Socialist Forum of Ghana, is very significant because it indicates the increasing interest 
in a different way of organizing the society of Ghana, which is marked by high income inequality and in a significant amount of poverty, especially in rural areas. And so the socialist movement of Ghana, I think, is indicative of something that we've seen all around the world, which is how the ideas of socialism, the ideas of revolution, the ideas of moving beyond capitalism, if you want to have a future that is in any way, shape or form equitable, is growing and it's growing in a significant way. There are about 3,000 members of the socialist movement of Ghana. And again, as you mentioned, this was their first national congress, but the socialist forum of Ghana had been around for about 30 years. There's about 3,000 members. They're organized in dozens and dozens of collectives, I think almost 40, all around the country at most of the major universities. And it's an extraordinarily young entity, which I think also speaks to something that we are seeing in terms of the composition of the people. Something else that we are seeing quite significantly all around the world, which is the rise of youth movements that are fighting for a better future. But, you know, there the delegates, and there was a few hundred delegates, I would say, you know, just back of the envelope, maybe 90% were under the age of 30. What's really significant about this is that it really is a future-oriented movement. It's a movement that has grown with thousands of younger people primarily looking to have a real future in Ghana and in West Africa. And there is a strong undercurrent of Pan-Africanism. So really the African continent in and of itself emerging from the shackles of neocolonialism that have unfortunately been holding the continent down really since formal independence and the long machinations that have been happening and continue to go on from imperialist countries around the world to make sure that Africa is nothing more than a resource extraction hub. But certainly in Ghana now we're seeing, but also all over the continent, more and more groups of young people really coming together. And I think this is a very unique situation where you have some of the legacy forces in the socialist movement of Ghana who've been struggling for some time, who have been able to facilitate the rise of youth consciousness around the issue of socialism in particular, around the issues of eliminating capitalism and what a socialist future could mean for the people of Ghana. So I would say it's quite significant. Obviously, Ghana is one of the most significant countries in Africa. Historically, it has well, all countries in Africa have quite a bit of history, but Ghana historically, you know, has had such a pride of place, particularly since the decolonial era, the decolonization process after World War II, the first country to gain some form of independence. Obviously, the great leader Kwame Nkrumah, who is a world historic figure, the overall history of Ghana and the broader history of world history really is quite significant in terms of traditional African history. So a country that in and of itself has a lot of, I don't know if moral authority is the right word, but I'll just use it, moral authority around its own existence. To see the rise of a movement like this in a country like Ghana, I think is deeply indicative of the possibilities for change in the broader West African region. Yeah, I I absolutely want to get more into Kwame Nkrumah, his legacy significance today. Before we get to that, though, let me just ask you, I mean, what are the top issues? Like, what are the most pressing injustices, social problems that are leading people, especially young people, to join this organization? What are the most important issues for the working class of Ghana? And do you see any parallels between what's going on in the United States as well? Well, I think that there are certainly parallels. I mean, I think there are a lot of pressing issues and and many of them, I think, could be put down to the overall reality of the future that's being presented right now by the current ruling class, where, you know, there's massive income inequality in Ghana. The top 10% of the country or something around that owns about 50% of the wealth. It might be the top 20%. When you're there in Ghana, you can see this tremendous amount of wealth that's actually coming into the country. You know, the oil has become a bigger industry there in Ghana. I think it's actually 
like maybe the 25th largest oil producer on earth or something like that. So there's a significant amount of money that is coming into the country. But you can see that the level of income inequality is extraordinarily high inside of the country. And so, for instance, you know, one of the forces that were very well represented there that gave a solidarity statement as well was the Trade Union Congress of Ghana. So workers are fighting for decent salaries, for decent wages, for the right really to organize into unions in a real way. I mean, you certainly have the right to join a union in Ghana, but, you know, they also have to fight over some of those issues and some of those representational issues. But you see a strong and a growing workers movement around people wanting to have you know, something approximating their fair share of the wealth that's obviously flowing into the country. And you can also see, obviously, in terms of service provision, that this is the way that it plays out, like many countries around the world. And these are some of the parallels that, you know, the more money you have, the more access you have to basic social services. Now, you know, when you go to Ghana compared to maybe some other countries in West Africa, it may certainly seem that things are perhaps better off than, let's say, Burkina Faso or somewhere like that. But when you look just below the surface, you can see that there are huge differences in terms of access to water, to the internet, to paved roads, to electricity, to all these different sorts of things that are totally you know, dependent on access to higher incomes. And that's becoming more and more of a big issue in terms of what's going on in youth unemployment is becoming more and more of a big issue. So I I think there's certainly parallels, you know, around the world. I mean, there's probably in many ways less of many of these problems in the United States, but I think that you see a very similar set of circumstances where absolutely working class people are struggling for dignity on the job. They're struggling for real wages. They're struggling for real equitable distribution of the wealth that is being created in the country. And they're also struggling for political space and democracy. I mean, even though, you know, Ghana is sort of held up as one of the great political democracies of Africa, and certainly compared to some other countries, there's much more democratic space. But nevertheless, it continues to be dominated by two major parties and a kleptocratic elite who do everything they possibly can to keep everyone else out of the game, as it were. So that's maybe just sort of a broad overview of some of the pieces that are there. Obviously, in rural areas, issues like poverty are worse than in urban areas. And so, you know, there's also struggles around having equitable distribution of resources in various parts of the country, not just between necessary, I mean, it is between the rich and the poor, but not just sort of simply in a level manner, but it really is very consistent with the divides between urban and rural in terms of the scale of the challenge and what needs to be done there. And let's just zoom out a little bit and talk about some regional trends. I mean, there have been mass protest movements across West Africa in recent years. There was the revolution in Burkina Faso in 2014. There were protests uh, a couple years ago in Guinea and in Liberia. These were all, you know, overwhelmingly youth-led protests, you know, with some of the key underlying issues that you're identifying there. There is the overthrow of the JAMA regime in the Gambia. There is, you know, lively, dramatic social movements going on all the time across the region. I mean, do people foresee something similar happening in Ghana? Is Ghana also prime for the emergence of uh, mass protest movement, mass struggle against the existing oligarchy? Well, we're going to have to see, but I do think that it's certainly possible. I mean, I think that certainly the emergence of a group like the Socialist Movement of Ghana with thousands of members raises that specter. And certainly in the context of the First National Congress, you know, there were people who were representative of countries that have seen uprisings in and of themselves. I mean, certainly Cote d'Ivoire was represented there. And in the last sort of sham elections that took place last year, there was, you know, significant protests that came out of working class communities and were pressed 
there. There were socialist groups from Burkina Faso, from Mali, where it's a complicated situation in Mali, but the overthrow of the government there in a response to the just, you know, shambolic handling of the military situation there in the north that has only exacerbated violence and obviously the neo-colonial realities of Mali vis-a-vis France, you know, that has opened up more space for radical popular forces. I mean, I was there at the Congress with someone who actually is a part of a broader movement that was able to win some offices and elections that were held and then they were told that they just didn't win and the, the, you know, the democracy was just totally abrogated because they did not want real radical forces inside of the political dispensation there in Mali. But I do think that when you look at that, also Benin, I will add, was also represented there at the Congress and where there is a strong movement. But I think what I'll say about that is that I think Ghana is in many ways also a pivot point for the rest of West Africa. And the emergence of a group like the SMG, which has a political training school, the Emakar Cabral School, that has attracted people from all across Africa, but especially West Africa in particular, you know, is operating as a leverage point to grow a broader movement across the region. And that was one of the things that was discussed at the Congress, the need to build a stronger front in West Africa, particularly against the machinations of French imperialism, which is playing an even bigger role in terms of the Sahel region, but the U.S., of course, also heavily involved there as well. So I think that the emergence of this is, yes, particular to Ghana, and yes, I do believe it is a sign that more can happen in Ghana. I think what we've seen in West Africa is that there's very little state capacity in many of these countries. I mean, the state is basically the military and the cops. They're looting the country of all of the wealth, the so-called governments by and large, sending it to foreign bank accounts, sending it to these big multinational corporations that control most of the resource extraction that is going on, which is principally you know, resource extraction and export-oriented agriculture, really the primary orientation of all of the West African economies and totally dominated usually by foreign, mostly Western multinationals. Although there is a growth in West Africa, of course, like all of Africa and all of the world of trade happening with China, which is changing the political, you know, possibilities and dispensations there as well. But I say all that just to say that I do believe that in those sorts of situations, the possibilities are immense and endless. And the issue of sort of hegemony from an ideological perspective over the populations is not as significant. And people are very clear, much more clear about the true predatory nature of these governments. And they certainly have repressive power, but they don't really have the positive power to develop the country at all, to improve people's lives at all. And it creates a tremendous amount of kindling there that I think could catch fire at any time. And I think having a strong, rooted, anchored socialist movement of Ghana in a country like Ghana, which already is in a preeminent position inside of the broader Western African region, I think is just a leverage point and a pivot point that could allow much more to be possible in Ghana, but also all across West Africa. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. I mean, you mentioned the role of the United States and French imperialism. Let's circle back to Kwame Nkrumah. So, well, I guess my first question is, who is Kwame Nkrumah and what is his political legacy in Ghana today, especially among those activists with the socialist movement of Ghana that you were spending time with? So Kwame Nkrumah is perhaps one of the greatest leaders of the world decolonization movement that happened after World War II as the former colonies of the Western European countries 
begin to emerge as independent. And Kwame Nkrumah had long played a role in the broader Pan-African movement. He was the founder of something called the Convention People's Party. That was really the political instrument that led to the independence of Ghana. As the president of Ghana, the head of Ghana from 1957 until 1966, he pursued a very progressive course, particularly as it concerns the anti-imperialist struggle and the ideological institute that he set up there was one of the main training grounds for liberation fighters all across the African continent. I mean, I would say in the early 1960s, it was really Accra, that's the capital of Ghana, and Cairo that were really the centers of the movement on the continent for decolonization, the fight against apartheid, and providing a huge amount of support to all of the countries that continue to be colonized. Of course, Kwame Nkrumah is also perhaps the most notable advocate of the idea of a united Africa. What is now the African Union, that was previously the Organization of African Unity, the OAU, really comes out of a struggle that Kwame Nkrumah was leading to unify the African continent that for a range of reasons was derailed by the imperialist forces, which led to the OAU, which is essentially a compromise position. But the ascension of the African Union, which was a, whatever we think about the various countries, was explicitly brought about to forward the issue of African unity shows that the influence of Kwame Nkrumah and the idea of Pan-African unity still remains quite strong. If in many countries only symbolically, certainly it still plays a major role in terms of the politics of the African continent. That was another major contribution by Kwame Nkrumah. And of course, you know, he was also famously cooed out in 1966 in a U.S.-backed, CIA-backed coup, and then had to move to the country of Guinea, led by Sekou Toure, who actually made him co-president in a gesture of how significant Kwame Nkrumah was to the broader issue of Pan-African unity and to the broader issue of decolonization and the end of apartheid and ending the influence of imperialism on the African continent. So a major figure, of course, you know, many famous books written by Kwame Nkrumah, neocolonialism, the last stage of imperialism is one that many people know and that continues to be extremely relevant to the modern reality of Africa today, but there are many, many more. There's the Handbook of Revolutionary Warfare, which also played a major role in the late 1960s for many African revolutionaries and revolutionaries around the world looking to struggle against imperialism. So I could go on and on and on, but I'll just go to your other point. You know, his legacy today is deeply contested in Ghana, and the socialist movement of Ghana has made one of their main tasks to to push forward the legacy of Kwame Nkrumah, to raise the legacy and to dispel the myths. Because he was cooed out by this reactionary coup in 1966, the historical memory of Kwame Nkrumah and who he was and what he really did has been massively distorted in Ghana and amongst the Ghanaian people. And it's a real struggle against reactionary forces to this day that fear the legacy of Kwame Nkrumah, which is anti-imperialist, which is pro-socialist, which is pro-pan-African unity. They fear the emergence of that as a current, of Nkrumahist style thought as a current in the country, because it would only go to expose how much they are wanting in terms of leadership and direction of the country vis-a-vis what Kwame Nkrumah and the Convention People's Party were doing from the late 1950s into the mid 1950s. 1960s. And so they have engaged in a range of campaigns, donating the collective works of Kwame Nkrumah to the colleges and universities, waging ideological warfare at the pamphlet level and other forms of media against those who are trying to spread lies about Kwame Nkrumah. So it's an interesting question because I think around the world, his image is so towering, but in Ghana, it really is a matter of contention and a matter of struggle in terms of the ideological ground on which the future of Ghana is being fought. 
Yeah, really interesting point. Really interesting point. I mean, one of the reasons, as you laid out there, that he's so well respected around the world, especially among left-wing people, radicals, revolutionaries, is that he was one of the rare leaders who was able to both well construct and lead a state, you know, engage in practical politics at the highest possible level, but was also an intellectual giant, made serious contributions to socialist theory and to the theory of decolonization and just political theory. Generally speaking, we just have a couple minutes left here. But, you know, since this is something that so few people in the United States are exposed to, I, I just wanted to ask you about, you know, one of these sort of famous polemics that Kwame Nkrumah engaged in in his life. He wrote a famous pamphlet called African Socialism Revisited. It was essentially his intervention in a debate with other post-colonial African leaders about the route to socialism. Just lay that out if you wait in the next minute or two, and then we can wrap up there. But I, I think it's really important for people in the United States to learn about these debates and to begin to engage with them and draw lessons for the situation here. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, in a couple minutes, what he was really trying to say is that many people were claiming socialist ideas without real socialist content. And, you know, he says African socialism revisited because at the time he wrote that, and for several years, a number of years after that, because the issue of socialism had high prestige across the continent, because there were many, many people who did feel, rightfully so, that they needed to do more than just decolonize, but they needed to organize, not in a way that copied these Western colonialist imperialist nations, but in a way that, you know, really conformed with equitable distribution of goods and resources and opportunities that really was something that was building on the collective legacy of early African societies. And so there were many, especially in the early phase, you know, he's writing this in 1967, in the early phase of the decolonization process who were actively holding this out. The Cold War, of course, then made a strong buildup of regimes that started to emerge after the initial wave of decolonization on the African continent, bringing forward these sort of capitalist governments that were at least presenting themselves as carbon copies of the West, but really were just neo-colonies of the West, but they didn't really want to admit that. And so there were many people who wanted to avoid any association with socialism and certainly with big C communism, i.e. the USSR or China. And so they started calling themselves African socialists so that they could say, well, yes, we have some level of appreciation for the socialist consciousness that people like Nkrumah, for instance, were putting forward. But, you know, we're doing it our own way. We aren't Europeans or whatever it may be. And Nkrumah's point was that socialism is not actually European. Socialism is scientific. It's a form of economic and social organization. And that like any form of economic and social organization, any group of people certainly can put it into play. And he was not downplaying that there are interesting and relevant and important ideas in the African past, as it were, that could certainly be built on in terms of explicating a socialist consciousness and way of being. But he also points out that there is a long history of class struggles in Africa and a long history of exploitative social systems in Africa. And you couldn't just universally apply, you know, African history or African consciousness without considering all of those things. But you had to really combine it with the scientific understanding of how society is based on a material reality and how everything really flows from that. And so the nature of that polemic was really to open up a struggle over the meaning of socialism in the modern context and whether or not it should be considered a white quote-unquote ideology or whether or not it be, should be considered a scientific ideology and a highly beneficial way for African nations and 
ultimately the continent to organize themselves in order to put into place a future that would be not neocolonialism, not imperialistly dominated, but that would really focus on people-centered, equity-centered politics and policies. So it's an important essay and it was an important polemic. And it certainly is one that is still relevant today, I think in many ways, but certainly it was very much rooted in the politics of seeking true liberation in Africa and seeking to do everything possible to avoid people using phraseology to push neocolonial policies onto the continent. All right, we're going to have to leave it right there. We were joined by Eugene Perrier. Check out more of his work at Breakthrough News, including the daily podcast, The Punch-Out. Walter, thanks so much for getting that really important interview with Eugene Perrier just back from Ghana, as you heard. Before we close out today's episode, let's hear what are the highlights from the Liberation News newsletter this week? Yeah, so as always, I want to encourage everybody to sign up for a newsletter. Go to liberationnews.org. You'll see the button at the top. We were talking about that very important demonstration in Alabama at the headquarters of the Realtor Association that's trying to overturn the eviction moratorium. You can read a detailed article about that on Liberation News. That's going to be the feature article at the very top. I also want to encourage people to check out an article titled people held in ICE detention 50 times more likely to test positive for COVID. I think that the title really tells you everything there. 50 times more likely to test positive for COVID. You can get more details about this terrible crisis, health crisis, human rights crisis that's going on for those held in brutal U.S. immigration detention. And then internationally, I want to recommend an article titled, As Iran Swears in New President, Israel Threatens War. The newly elected Iranian president, Ibrahim Raisi, took office and time to coincide with the very day where he's sworn in the defense minister, I'm putting that in air quotes, the so-called defense minister of Israel, talked about how the country, his country, was prepared to launch a military strike on Iran. So check that out. Go to liberationnews.org every day for constant updates and sign up for a newsletter at the top. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.